A new three-digit phone number is the latest effort to decrease suicide numbers in the United States. The National Institute of Mental Health says suicide is the second leading cause of death among women ages 25 to 34. Of particular concern for women is the year before a woman gives birth and the year following childbirth. But everyone gets sad sometimes, so how do you know when it's time to seek help? And what are the trends that put some people at higher risk than others for suicide? By just dialing 988, a caller can be connected to a trained mental health professional. But we have one in our podcast today to help us understand and arm ourselves with information about the mental health crisis. That's in this episode of our Unprivate Parts podcast. Welcome to Unprivate Parts, a podcast hosted by Women's Hospital. Join us as we pull back the proverbial curtain with honest discussions on women's health and the uncomfortable subjects we all want answers to. Welcome to our Unprivate Parts podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Amber Pardon. We are so grateful to have you here, considering your specialty and such a serious, important topic that affects many more people, I think, than we realize. Let's first start off with you explaining to us your specialty, your passion, your work on a day-to-day basis, Dr. Pardon. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. I'm um, pretty excited to be talking about this in, in, at this time in particular, given the, the new rollout of this three-digit number, um, which I think is really going to improve access to mental health treatment and just getting the word out because, you know, sometimes finding that access or knowing where to get that access is the hardest thing. Um, but so I'm um, doing perinatal psychiatry here at Women's Hospital. Um, I did my training in child and adolescent psychiatry, so there's a lot of training that is um, components of that in the de- developmental aspect, you know, pregnancy, raising kids, that kind of stuff. I find myself um, really drawn to the parenting aspect of that. I really, um, I think that's sort of my niche is helping moms and parents in general, um, you know, kind of deal with the day-to-day stresses of particularly now being moms of several kids and the strain of overworked, um, maybe sometimes undercompensated or underappreciated people. And we're just pulled in so many directions and knowing how to navigate, you know, when to ask for help, when to um, say no, when you've gotten to the point where you just can't take anymore because it's too overwhelming. And it seems in this post-COVID world or the COVID world we still live in that parents are struggling more than ever, at least in my experience in living for so many decades. Uh, Is that the case that you're seeing? It seems like we did see a big shift with COVID, I think particularly with um, the changes in schooling in the beginning where schools were shut down and it was put on the parents in a time where they still had, you know, work life and trying to balance everything. And suddenly, while they might be working from home, they're still working, but also expected to do a lot of the day-to-day teaching, helping with facilitating whatever the school um, kind of put together in terms of making sure that they had a structured environment to learn their lessons or even staying on the video when it comes to, you know, some of the online schooling. Um, So it was a big shift and it did it took it took a lot out of these parents who have you know any kids at home, but small kids in particular, where they would have some help or that time to be able to commit to work. And now it's just 
you know, it's too much. We, we aren't capable of doing it all on our own. Are you seeing that correlate, that stress over the past couple of years correlate with uh, suicide levels in terms of the, the patients that you're seeing? Does that seem to come into play when people are thinking about death or suicide? So I think when you when you get down to the nitty gritty of what happens when you you know really overwhelm the system with people with communities um, and what we're asking of ourselves and what we're being asked by society is essentially it's just leading to burnout and when you work that hard and you know uh, particularly with women we kind of have this self imposed um, driven I think by society need to be good caretakers and to do it all and to be, you know, quote, independent, um, which sometimes puts us in the position of feeling like it's not okay to ask for help or say that you can't do it all. Um, and the guilt that comes with that, you know, mom guilt is real and it's compounded by all these expectations. And, you know, sometimes the messages from the grandparents or mother-in-law or, you know, friends who might say, well, when I raised my kids, I did such and such. And so, you know, people have different perspectives and different experiences and they have different supports. Um, and so the expectations of what one person can do is going to be totally different than the other person. But I think what we initially saw, um, which I don't know why this happened or, um, you know, we've not really made sense of this, but as far as mental health care workers, um, the burden of having so many people reaching out for help that came along with COVID. Um, really, all of my colleagues in psychiatry, in psychology, the therapists, the, the counselors that um, I've been working alongside with, we're all burnt out because we are trying so hard to help all these folks who are reaching out. So I think in terms of um, what actually happened is that a lot of people started to really get more symptomatic. They struggled a little bit more, but also maybe because they had a little bit more time or a little bit more um, flexibility to reach out or things got so dis you know desperate that they had to reach out at, at that point. But somehow what we saw was that there actually was a little bit less suicide in particular because they had much more of an outreach to try to get mental health um, services. There was a big shift, though, in substance use. And so those um, overdoses in general, which the numbers on that are tricky because it's really hard to determine whether or not it's intentional versus not, but um, that went up exponentially in, in the years following COVID um, and is still trending up. But other than that, the actual completed suicides did only in a, in a small way, but did kind of stabilize and then go down a bit. And it seems like the the larger trend over so many years, uh, the past decade, two decades, it seems like suicides uh, in general, in every in most studies I read, have increased. Uh, in in the, again, in the general sense of trends mm -hmm. increasing, and I'm just wondering. Um, why that could be? What are we doing to ourselves in this country, right? I think that might be my favorite question to answer um, because, in my opinion, what I see so much of is this trend and this shift towards um, 
you know, we want to make sure that we're not hurting each other's feelings or, you know, we want to limit exposures to things that most people find stressful or don't agree with. Um, And so I think we all have to be sensitive to each other's emotions and we have to be compassionate and kind and, you know, nice to each other. But at the same time, we also have to be more flexible with this idea that not everybody is the same. We are all individuals. And so what we're creating, I think, is this system of an expectation that we don't have to have tolerance for other people having different values, ideas, thoughts, opinions, or, you know, ways that they live their life. But um, we shield ourselves from that. And that avoidance winds up impacting us in ways that when those bigger things come that we can't change or can't avoid, we have no tolerance of it. We have no ability to cope with that because we've not learned to do it. It's, I mean, those are skill-based things that we should learn in childhood. But if you protect your kids from every single thing that could create some negative emotion, they never learn how to bounce back. They never learn how to fail and then pick themselves back up. And they never learn how to tolerate that I can be your friend and still appreciate that you might think differently about this thing than I do. But even the numbers of children committing suicide, and every time I hear one of these stories, it is so hard for me. I have a friend whose son committed suicide in high school, and uh, and it's been become her mission to speak out about it as well. Uh, I can't imagine something more heartbreaking as a parent. Uh, what is it that our kids are experiencing? And we've talked about the parents and the stresses on the parents and how that maybe the parents could have been raised differently growing up to have different coping mechanisms or coping skills. What can we do for our kids who are thinking of ending their lives instead of all the future ahead of them and all the potential they have? What do you say to that? So with that, I think two things come to mind. Um, First, from a developmental standpoint, you know, understanding that kids, um, you know, the young, young kids, and sometimes they might do impulsive, dangerous things and don't really understand the impact that this has or the finality of death, right? And so even, you know, six or seven-year-olds might say these dramatic things that they were exposed to, like, oh, I'm going to kill myself or I wish I was dead. And they don't truly know what that means because, you know, death isn't um, defined in their in their brain the, the way that it would be for us as adults. And it feels terrifying and dramatic when you hear that, um, but also kind of acknowledging that the message that child is trying to get across, um, you have to, you know, translate that to what the developmental um, intent was in that, in that situation. Um, when it comes to the older kids, I think, again, kids were built – you know, young pre-adolescent and adolescent, we're built to be impulsive. Um, our brains are not ready to think things through. We are not good at cause and effect at those ages. Um, and so when we have really big, intense emotions, the impulse is to find relief in whatever way that comes first. And so, again, going back to this idea of developing tolerance and helping with emotional regulation, if it's a child who was raised in this environment of a lot of avoidance and we don't talk about emotions and emotions aren't dealt with, then what they learn over time is that when I feel really, really bad, nobody understands me, nobody can help me, 
and there's no other way out because it might not go away. And that intense fear in a moment can cause such a, you know, impulsive decision to do something that you can't take back. So I think the key is really just helping with that idea of emotional regulation to understand that, you know, your emotions, your feelings are okay. I get that you feel that way. I get that this comes up when a stressful thing happens. Um, instead of being dismissive and saying things like, you know, sometimes as parents, we tell them to brush it off or it's going to be okay or, you know, don't worry about that. Um, and that is very invalidating, especially to kids who have no idea why they feel these big things that just don't feel good. And it's the parent's role to try to explain to them what they're feeling and what that means. And and if if we can't do that for them, then they're sort of stuck in this kind of big, bad emotion. And, and it's easy to understand in those situations how even a brief moment of feeling so bad leads you to there's no other escape rather than death. It sounds like there should be a one-on-one course for all parents on how to speak to your children about, and you're nodding your head, yes, in agreement, about um, how to share their feelings, because that's a difficult thing to just expect a parent to know how to do. And there's, and we live in such a world of overflow of information that it's hard. I will speak from experience. It's hard to weed out the best, most effective information. Because for instance, you go on social media, everyone is an expert. Everyone has a parenting online course to take or something that they're selling. And, and I'm a, a bit of a sucker for going down those rabbit holes because I do want to know, and I do put the burden on myself as a parent too, uh, to try to figure out how can I proactively prevent my children from going through this sort of shutdown. Uh, I ordered a book online for my four-year-old girl, how to deal with your emotions. Okay. So, well, you're, are you feeling sad? Cause she'll scream and get dramatic. Well, here are the options. Uh, you can scream in a pillow, you can pray, you can, you know, here are the, the different options, but we don't, we don't scream. We don't, um, we don't be ugly to people. We don't hit. Uh, and so I'm wondering to, to that point, um, how can we direct, how can we best direct parents? And at what age should we start paying attention to this so that it doesn't build up, the stress doesn't build up for the child over so many years to the point where they are now suicidal? So how can we prevent it along the way and recognize early signs in children? Well, I'm going to, to answer your question about where does it start? It starts in pregnancy. Um, with the idea of how you're able to calm yourself during the pregnancy and the level of, you know, stress and the stress hormones that are exposed to the child, because that can absolutely make an impact on that first year of life and whether or not you have a child that is capable of, you know, attachment and, and the security of the bond between the mother and the child um, or any caregiver in the child and whether or not they might be a little more irritable than some other kids, um, which creates more challenges because it's easy as a parent to get frustrated with a baby that's nonstop crying. I mean, it's just difficult to tolerate those things, um, you know, or the other complications that come along with, you know, feeding issues or even, you know, reflux, which is very normal in lots of babies, but it's a pain in the butt and it's hard to deal with. And so our emotions get in the way when we're doing that. And then we kind of get back to this, you know, 
this mindset of, I want to be a good parent. I just got to push it down and push it down and push it down and pretend like everything's okay and, you know, just be there for my child. Um, and some of us are really good at that and, you know, can maintain this this normal level of managing our anxiety over that that first several years. Some not so good and we'll have that emotional eruption that shows up as, you know, making the child feel like maybe they're the problem. Um, and it's not intentional. It's because kids can be, they are very, very egotistical. So anything that happens that makes them feel um, sad or scared or angry, um, they tend to initially internalize as them being the problem. You know, this is why when parents get divorced, for example, it is so normal and almost always will happen that the child assumes it's their fault. It's just the the egotistical side of them that can't see anything different. Um, but we tend to avoid our kids' emotions sometimes because we don't know what to do with emotions, period, including our own. And so, you know, to your point, it's how do we share with parents or help parents figure out what to do or what early signs to look for? Well, I think first, from a developmental standpoint, understanding that all kids can be super bratty, super irritable. Um, kids are not going to be at their best if they're tired or they're hungry or they didn't get their way. Um, kids are, we are all born with this innate aggression. So all kids hit and that's very normal. And it doesn't mean they're psychopaths or they're bad kids. Um, and sometimes we kind of unpack all these bad parts of our kids and put labels either in our mind or out loud. Um, some of that comes from judgment from other parents because one kid might be different than the other in what they call good or bad ways. But I don't think it's fair to compare anybody. We're all individuals and we will all show up in different ways, um, behaviorally and emotionally. And so, you know, even two kids raised by the same exact parents and what is perceived to be the same exact way will have different behaviors, different responses to all of those things. Um, but going back to what you initially said, I think you focused a little bit more on what most parents do, which is the behavior. And so taking a step back to understand that, especially with little kids, but even with, you know, preteens and the teens, Behavior is communication. And so kids learn how to communicate first with behavior before they even have language development. That behavior by, you know, in a week of life, they start crying. Well, that is communication. And so if you think about a tantrum in a two-year-old or a three-year-old or sometimes your six-year-old who's still tantruming, that's communication. So if you look back and say, what is happening to my child? What is my child feeling? And focus on the emotion and not the behavior then you might get to the root of what's going on for them, which is they're angry or they're sad and validate that. Because, you know, if you have two kids that are playing together and one kid takes a toy from the other kid and the one who takes the toy gets in trouble and nothing is addressed about the emotion that, that led to taking the toy, then the only thing that child who got reprimanded learns is that that child is more important than me he gets the toy. So you have to be able to communicate with the child who had the, you know, quote, bad behavior or the unwanted behavior by helping them make sense out of how these behaviors show up because the emotions exist. The emotion always comes first. If you target that, the good behavior follows. Would you say the same is true for adults then? Because if sometimes if you've had problems as a child and you have grown up 
uh, with a certain way of thinking, it doesn't necessarily change when you're an adult. You just have a mindset of a child in an adult's body. So the behavior of an adult, in other words, would be uh, representative of the same sort of problem. Don't know how to communicate. Would you say that's true for the adult as well? And how can we not only cope in our own difficulties in communicating or recognizing, because it's got to be hard to recognize when you haven't seen that for your entire life as an adult, and also recognizing this issue in other people around you, people you love. How can you notice if that is a problem and what can you do about it, uh, specifically call 988, uh, but anything else that you have to say about that? The first thing that comes to mind is thinking back to the the parenting point, and it's funny you mentioned that about, you know, that shows up in adults too, because I oftentimes call um, when parents, quote, act out, it's just an adult tantrum that is very much the same thing. We show up in ways where our emotions turn into behaviors because we're not taking care of the emotion. And that is kind of the whole point of emotional regulation. When bad things happen or when we feel those really big, deep-rooted, um, awful things that that most of the time are the triggers to feeling you know, suicidal or depressed, for example, like rejection or fear of failure or abandonment. Um, and those things, they feel awful. But to be able to step back and have the skills to say, I get that I've felt this thing, you know, fear of failure, for example, in that moment, and I get why, um, and take the next steps of processing that emotion, taking care of that emotion, kind of reframing the idea of what that meant and how to move forward rather than just, you know, wallowing in the wrongness of me and getting to the point where, you know, I'm not good enough and I'm never going to be good enough and nobody loves me and everybody's going to abandon and reject me. And then there's nothing else but hopelessness and this fantasy of, of relief by death. And that's a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. So, the importance of this 988 number. Well, I mean, what was, what existed before? It was, I think, my understanding, the same uh, help was available. It just wasn't as easily accessible and uh, it wasn't as well known. But with this three, it's sort of like a 911 system for the mental health crisis, mm -hmm. correct? And, and explain to us what will happen when someone calls this number. Um, so what existed before, it's it's essentially what they're doing is kind of changing the number and, um, you know, bulking up the resources, if you will. So what existed before was a 10-digit 1-800 number um, that, you know, as many times as I looked at it and spit it out, I can't really recall the number. So to me, in a moment of emotional um, heightened feelings, when your emotions are taking up the capacity of your bandwidth in the brain, you can't think of a 10-digit number. You're not going to. Um, so 988 is one of those things where it just, you know, the message kind of goes out there and people are similar to 911. You can just spit it out like it's nothing. You pick up the phone, you dial three numbers. Um, and what you'll get on the other end is someone who answers the phone and it's kind of like a triage system. So this is a national line as it always has been. Um, but it sort of filters through, you know, what's the crisis? Is this that, you know, you're just in a moment of weakness, feeling re really overwhelmed and you, some supportive conversation or a counselor to talk to? Um, is this that you're suicidal and, you know, didn't know who else to reach out to? And so the triage will then filter through 
and either give you that um, trained counselor that you can have a conversation with. And statistically, when they've looked at these lines and people accessing having someone to talk to, um, the rates of their symptoms, um, feelings of suicide or hopelessness have decreased. So it's beneficial. Um, and then if it needs to be, you know, acute measures need to be taken within that community or region, then it filters into the regional resources, which would be the local crisis line and or um, emergency services. So you may not necessarily be suicidal or think that you're suicidal, or if you're speaking of a friend or family member, you might not think that that person is suicidal either. This is a mental health crisis line. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes we don't know that we're suicidal. And so what you're saying is it's worth calling if you're in a, if you're struggling internally, feeling those symptoms you're talking about of hopelessness, uh, I'm not doing anything right, I'm in an impossible situation, even if you're not thinking of death or suicide, you could still be headed towards suicidal behaviors or thoughts if you don't address it now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Um, you know, I think what, what starts to happen is again, a, separate from this idea of I'm actually going to kill myself, it becomes this hopeless feeling that the only way I can stop feeling this awful feeling is if I were dead, you know? So the fantasy of death is not imminent suicidality. It can lead there. Um, but if, if you get to help if you if you can have somebody to talk to and get treatment before you get to the actual suicidal ideation or thinking that you're planning for or intend to kill yourself then you know the, the risk is lower and you actually have a much better chance of of being able to feel better what are the other symptoms of depression anxiety that could lead to thoughts of death or suicide and i do think there's an important distinction there because sometimes uh, people, let's say they're going through a horrible illness, they may not want to commit suicide or think about that, um, but they could have thoughts of death. And that is still as mentally concerning or draining in terms of the mental health crisis, you're saying. So what are the other symptoms uh, that we should be concerned about that would lead us to seek help? So when you think about specifically depression, um, Oftentimes what I see is that, again, especially in America um, and in our society, it's just this constant um, push or sometimes self-imposed, but really societal message that we just got to keep giving more and keep doing more and that selfish is not okay, even though selfish is necessary because no one else is ever going to take care of us the way that we can take care of ourselves. But we don't feel permitted to do that, right? So we don't ask for help and we just do, 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 do and give, 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 give. Um, and it can become exhausting. And that sort of shows up most often in a lot of this anxiety of worrying that it's not good enough, worrying that you're going to disappoint somebody, worrying that you're not going to complete all these things that you have on your to-do list because it's just impossible. But we don't stop and consider that we are, you know, unreasonable in our expectations of ourselves, or that maybe someone else is unreasonable in their expectations of us. And I'm going to say, most often that happens in the workplace. And that's not because everybody who's running the systems are big jerks. It's just because they want the work done. And if you're one of those givers that's going to keep doing it, then nobody's going to stop you, 
right? And so you have to be able to stop and say, no, I can't do this and set those boundaries. Um, but internally, there's too much guilt that shows up and stops us from having boundaries like that. Um, so then with the anxiety that builds and builds and builds until the system is just totally over, um, overmaxed and overwhelmed. And then the shutdown that comes next is oftentimes what we see and that looks like depression. And that's where it's just you have worked too hard, you've done too much, and the brain can't take on any more, and then you can't get out of bed. You don't look forward to anything. Nothing gives you joy or pleasure. Um, there's nothing that you look forward to. Cracking a smile at a joke is um, a rarity at that point, even though sometimes typically you would you know, laugh at every joke or just be silly and playful, and that doesn't show up anymore. Um, and that depression can be long-term or it could just be momentary. Um, and I think sometimes what we fail to realize is that most of the people who show up on a regular basis and seem like they are doing so well and have it all together and get everything done on the surface, um, those people might be so overwhelmed. And because of this idea of guilt and shame to ask for help because that means they can't do it all and those expectations can't be met. Um, so the intention is to really make it so that nobody sees that they're struggling. That's what they're doing on purpose because they want to look like they have it all together. So it can be very hard to see. You, it's easily missed, I think, um, which again kind of goes back to this idea of having access to something that could be even anonymous because it doesn't really create a lot more of that shame. Um, that might happen if you are asking a friend or a family member for help. Right. Um, and then the 988 number. Um, but, you know, when those things change and it really impacts the way that you function, getting out of bed, um, you're sleeping too much or you can't sleep at all. And, you know, your body takes this toll where you feel like there's no energy, no motivation. You have no desire to do things that typically would bring you joy. Then that's a big cue that you're probably shut down or depressed or so overwhelmed that you just can't go anymore. What about stomach aches or headaches or any other sort of physical symptom? That's a good point. Um, that's another thing that I think we started very, very early on. Most of us will start shutting down those um, body cues that show up when we have, you know, anxiety or worries or anything that's coming from the brain as an emotional signal that always filters through the body in some way. But if we ignore that, again, starting at a really early age, then by the time we get to um, adulthood, then we've kind of unattuned ourselves to our body cues. And so sometimes when it shows up in bigger ways, we wind up with things like IBS or fibromyalgia because the tension that builds over time and just sits and sits and sits and creates all this, um, you know, maintaining tension in your body for that long is really difficult it's, and it's taxing on the body um, or having, you know, constant issues with your stomach. And, you know, it keeps the gastroenterologist, neurologist and rheumatologist in business. Um, but I think it all boils down to, in addition to getting the help from all of those people, you really have to focus on what are these body cues coming from? It is the the brain sending signals. It is, it's all connected. Um, and being less afraid of those body signals coming to say, you know, if I'm having some, some 
butterflies in my stomach or nausea in my stomach. Okay, what am I stressed out about? What's coming up that's bringing these symptoms? And and so, yeah, it does show up a lot of times in physical ways. And that's a good reminder, too, of some sort of stress relief exercise, yoga, or any a walk around the block, um, I know has been proven to keep those um, to keep your heart rate down, keep those levels down that can then build up. You're talking about the tension in your mm -hmm. body that leads to all that. So yeah. just a reminder for people, if you can just take a walk, get out of the house, take a walk outside. And I know um, before I let you go, I, I also want to talk uh, just a tad bit more about pregnancy. I was um, actually a bit surprised to hear you say that that those internal feelings for childhood that of course then lead into adulthood start in the womb with how the mother is feeling. So what can pregnant women do? Cause a large part of our audience is uh, pregnant women or young mothers, mothers of young ones. And so what could a pregnant woman do uh, to help regulate their bodies and, and keep their stress levels down? I think the biggest things that I would say, and a lot of people don't really kind of think of this, um, but the easiest thing is, is really just to try some of that physical movement and meditation. Um, and when I say physical movement, it could be anything, you know, just getting up and moving your body. Because what happens when you have a stress response is all those hormones that pump through your body, um, they kind of get stuck, you know, and historically in, in, you know, decades and centuries ago, it was because we had to fight off, you know, some tribal enemy or a, a you know, an animal that was going to kill us. Well, now the conflicts that come up, the stresses that come up don't require the need for a physical fight or for us to actually physical, physically run most of the time. But we still need to get that energy out. The stuff that's pumped through our system, all that adrenaline, all that energy that goes through our system, it still needs to come out. And so having that physical activity that can help, you know, sort of utilize those, um, all that energy and those hormones can help us to feel better physically and doesn't require a lot. It doesn't have to be cardiovascular exercise, just movement. Ten, even 10 minutes a day mm -hmm. of um, walking. Uh, Dr. Amber Pardon, we really appreciate you being here. 988 uh, goes into effect July 16th. And once you call 988, you will be set up with a, a mental health crisis professional local to you, right? Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think I'm just, um, you know, excited to have, a, I guess, a, a better way to share this idea of, of gaining access and, again, limiting more of this stigma as much as we can so that people are not so afraid to ask for help. 100%. Thank you so much, Dr. Barton, for your specialty and for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unprivate Parts. Be sure to follow Women's Hospital on social media and follow us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Thank you for listening.